Welcome to another episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And this month, we are tackling a pretty big genre. I think a favorite genre by a lot of people. I think courtroom dramas are a favorite genre by a lot of people. I don't know Mm. why. Maybe I'm guessing. Maybe I'm (laughs) guessing. But I just remember back in the day when we posted like on like our Facebook or my Facebook, what old people use uh, nowadays. But like, I like, what's your favorite courtroom drama? I felt we got the most answers mm. for any other genre we asked about. And the movie we were talking about today, we never heard anything about for some reason. And that and that list of comments from people, mm-hmm. I think this is like a big, of like, uh, not talked about enough classic. I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but we'll <laughs> discuss as we go on. But Thomas, what have we talked about so far? Uh, in the courtroom dr- drama genre uh, when we talked about 12 Angry Men last week. Well, we, we, we talked about how 12 Angry Men is not actually uh, the courtroom drama. A courtroom drama, but, ca- but covers everything yes. that goes with it. Yes. and But we talked about how kind of courtroom dramas have this built-in kind of, I mean, a, a, it's it's a play. A trial is a yeah. play. Yeah. You have your, your monologues. You have your dialogue with your examinations. You've got someone kind of directing things with the judge. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 kind of built for drama. It is a, it is a spectacle. Like it's 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 law and order, but it's it's also a spectacle, and and so a lot of that is is just kind of pre built to to tell a story through. And and so last week we talked about Twelve Angry Men and how it's not in a courtroom, but it still brings in a lot of this stuff, like uh, you know, talking about the evidence and and talking about the. I mean, they discuss the lawyers and and the different performances of the lawyers in 12 angry men but what 12 angry men does is give us this look inside the jury room which is something no one else had really done before and something like we said yeah no one everyone's (laughs) been kind of scared to do since since 12 angry men kind of perfects that yeah and and i think with this genre more than a lot of the genres we covered i think we'll discuss more as this month goes on not as much in 12 Angry, angry angry men but you have these like character archetypes mm-hmm. within the courtroom. You have the older, wise judge. I think sometimes she's like played by like a character actor of some kind of of the era. Uh, you can have the young hotshot attorney on either side of the of the the courtroom. Uh, you can have the old country like aging lawyer, country lawyer, or just like a experienced but not big lawyer anymore mm-hmm. i think we'll talk about that a little bit with witness for the prosecution um or and i think sometimes you can have this like evil prosecutor not evil is and that's mm-hmm. made too strong of a term but like kind of just a this is the villain this is the antagonist of the courtroom here yeah i started like, thinking about it watching this one and writing the script yeah. like most of these are defense attorney yes. movies yes yes very few very very few times do you see a prosecution prosecutor story yeah. uh doing it like that's what law and order tv is for i guess <laughs> uh but like i think of like a one i think of specifically that i think really tries to like tries to show the like the evilness but also tries to show like behind it is uh philadelphia mm-hmm. with uh because they have uh mary steenbergen who's doing the is the prosecutor in that movie and she's just like kind of attacking tom hanks's character but then i remember like she sits down once she's like i hate this mm-hmm. like she knows that like she's doing a terrible thing but it's her job and i think yep. a lot of times you can have that in the prosecutor it's like it's interesting it's a more complex 
thing, I guess, but no one really tries to go into it. Um, so yeah, but it's it's a it's a it's all usually all defense attorneys. If we're talking about criminal case, mm-hmm. it's usually defense or sometimes you'll see movies that are civil cases that's you have a defendant and a plaintiff, I think is what it is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll be able to see the plaintiff side. Um but yeah, so a lot of archetypes in it. I think you mentioned kind of last week that you have a lot of chances for these characters to monologue in some way. Mm-hmm. If that be in the opening statements or closing statements, which we'll uh, we'll talk about today, which I find kind of funny in this movie um, with closing statements, uh, but you have a lot of opportunity for that, like you said, kind of a stage play, like Kevin Costner and JFK, with mm. like there's a whole back half of a movie. It's basically a whole movie. It's just him in the courtroom. Yeah, for like yeah. two thirds. McConaughey and, and Time to Kill. Time to Kill, like, uh, even, yeah, it's like you, I mean, I mean Gregory Peck and to, to Kill a Mockingbird, which we, we talked about before on the show last year during a Southern Month. It's, like it's, it's, a, it's a big place for actors to have a place to go on for a long period of time yeah. with fun, with, with interesting and complex and kind of chewy dialogue in some way. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of what we've talked about for the courtroom drama so far. I think today we're going to dive even more into that because this yes. is a pure, a pure courtroom drama in comparison to say 12 angry men and a really big trial movie mm-hmm. like, and we'll, and we'll discuss. So let's talk about what we're talking about. Cause I don't think we've mentioned it, but we're talking about anatomy and murder, Thomas. So you're handling it today. Tell me about anatomy and murder. What's it, what's it about? So, Anatomy Murder, 1959 film, uh, mm-hmm. produced and directed by Otto Preminger. Mm-hmm. And it is about a, a small-time lawyer, formerly the district attorney, who's now kind of semi-retired, doing a lot of yeah. fishing and, he's fishing. and yeah, he's working fishing. in private practice. And he is hired to defend a uh, an army lieutenant who shot the man who allegedly raped his wife. And so it's about this lawyer kind of investigating the case and then trying it in a courtroom. And, and it's a pretty high, uh, high visibility trial. So these, these big time district attorneys sent in to fight him. And, and it's about defending this, his client, trying to figure out for himself whether his client is, is innocent or guilty. And also uh, trying to do so using a, a very questionable uh, precedent. Yes, 1886 or something yeah. like that's like so so old so like i said it was produced and directed by Otto preminger the film was adapted by wendell mays from a novel by robert robert traver it was scored by duke ellington and it had title designs by the iconic saul bass uh, the cast includes jimmy stewart george c scott lee remick ben gazera uh, joseph welch eve arden uh, Catherine grant crosby ben crosby's wife and Murray Hamilton, the mayor of Amity, for all of you Jaws fans yep, out there. Yeah, Murray Hamilton. I, I was like, it's funny when I first saw this back in the day, and I'll talk about it in a minute when I first saw it. But like, I realized it's kind of. I mean, Jaws I've seen before, but like, it's an interesting intro for a lot of these actors for me. Mm-hmm. Even though some I might have seen before, I took note of them more in this. Like, say Ben Gazzara. Mm. Like, I'm, I, pro- I, I feel like I saw Roadhouse before I saw this movie, but. I was more aware of who Ben Gazzara was in this movie than I was Roadhouse later, if that makes sense. Yeah. Same with yep. Murray Hamilton. Yeah, so, I mean, going off of that, Brandon, what's your what's your history with this movie? Okay, so Nami Murder. I have, I have a fun, I think it's a fun story for me. I was thinking about this today or yesterday when I was watching it, or a few days when I was watching it. 
And I saw this in high school for the first time. And what I remember about was that it was on AFI's 10 Top 10. Mm-hmm. And they had like courtroom dramas as one. Of the, like, they said 10 genres, 10 movies from that genre that were the best. And this is in the courtroom drama one. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I bought the DVD either like on Amazon for cheap or I bought it at a place called Movie Stop, the 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 movie version of GameStop. And I watched it and this is when I realized I was different. Or this is maybe one of the movies that I realized I was different than the rest of my classmates. Because I remember someone talking about we're talking about movies and they're talking about I don't know whether they're talking about what they liked or whatever. But I just remember saying, like, oh yeah, I just watched a three hour black and white movie last night, a courtroom drama. And they were just like, what? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, you guys don't do that. Um, but I was like, Oh, I'm just, no one's going to, I was like, Oh, okay. I see movies differently than a lot of my friends. Like no one's going to sit down and watch a three hour black and white courtroom drama in my class and enjoy it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and kind of worship Jimmy Stewart as I was at that point in my, in my high school career. And so I was like, oh, this is different. And then when watching it too, what I found funny, I said that it was kind of my intro to a lot of actors, specifically as my intro to George C. Scott, mm, because yeah. I distinctly remember I watched this one week. The next week I watched The Hustler. Mm. And I was like, oh, it's the same guy from Mammy and Murder. And either that week or the week after, I watched Doctor Strange Love. I was like, oh, it's the same guy from yeah. Mammy and Murder. This the guy's Hustler. pretty good. He's pretty good. Yeah. It was just like bam, bam, bam. You guys not heard of this knowing, guy? George C. Not, Scott? Yeah, not knowing anything about him where I was just like, oh, he's in all of these movies. <laughs> like, pretty close. And it's like, and what was so weird is that every movie you kind of saw him like get a bigger part in some mm-hmm. way. Where it's like he's 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 here in Abbey Murder, but he's not a big part. He gets a little bit bigger in the hustler because he's Paul Newman's like handler for a bit at one mm-hmm. point. And then he's even bigger in Doctor Strange Love, as we talked about a few months ago. And then he's like and he's Patton, and you're just, and that's why that's, he's Patton. I was like, oh wow, he just like it was like bam, 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 all the way up the ladder, and and then finding out he like declined the Oscar, like the first person to, first actor to decline an Oscar basically, and not give a, a reason, not give like a political reason, but it was just like, no, nah, I don't want the Oscar, plain and simple. Um, and yeah, but like same with like Lee Remick, it was my intro to her, um, seeing Murray Hamilton at a young age ben gazera at a young age it was it's an interesting kind of period of like seeing a the almost like the not not fall i don't say it's a fall but like you're seeing the transitional period mm-hmm. of like older actors going out and these newer actors all of a sudden coming in so you're seeing yep. this old jimmy stewart and then you're seeing these young ben gazera murray hamilton and Lee, these kind of younger actors, some maybe just character actors that will be later, but like you're seeing the transitional period of the, that kind of acting class that was like in old Hollywood, but also in new Hollywood mm-hmm. is the thing. Um, and also Eve Arden, who's from Greece, like the principal in Greece is the thing. Like it's, it's, it's a really a big spot for character actors in this movie. Yeah. But what about you? What is your history with anatomy of a murder? I'm I'm in a similar boat, and I've, I've said it before, but we my family got Blockbuster Mail, the the Blockbuster yeah. equivalent of Netflix, yeah, yeah, yeah. sometime in yeah. in like middle school, and yeah. we just went through and like every AFI list and just like made our queue like everything that was on the AFI yep. list, and so much of 
classic film that I saw just dates back to that. It was just like, what showed up in the mail the next time? And a lot of times Blockbuster, I think, only had like one DVD of anything. So, you know, we'd have like Lawrence of Arabia would be sitting on the queue and they'd be like, all right, we're going to send you the next thing on the queue because like we haven't gotten Lawrence of Arabia back. But um, but yeah, we got this one. I'd always been a Jimmy Stewart fan. I think this was, you know, long after I'd seen Philadelphia story for the first time. And yeah, this one blew me away. Like like you said, this was the first thing I think I ever saw George C. Scott in. And, um, you know, it was still fairly, I was early high school maybe when I saw this, like still didn't quite grasp everything that was going on in this case, but but always one that, that stuck with me and I didn't revisit it for a really long time. But then I went back to it and I was like, oh, this was, this was as good as I remembered it. Uh, yeah. Maybe if not better, because I didn't recognize what was going on. And and it's another one of those things, we'll, we'll talk about it throughout the episode, but when you put it in context of the time, it's just kind of insane. It's what is in this movie. <laughs> it's mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. I, because I think I want again, I don't think I've seen it since high school, but it had such an effect on me that like, I remember specific things, specific scenes, specific kind of dialogue and moments in it because it was that effective. Yeah. Um, but it was, I remember just being like, Oh, this is 1959. <laughs> this, this is, this is kind of, it's weird hearing some of these words in Jimmy Stewart from Jimmy Stewart's mouth is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about it as we keep going. Um, yeah. But yeah. So to dive into how this movie got made, the history of the movie traces back to a real murder. Uh, Robert Traver, who was the author of the novel Anatomy of a Murder, was actually the pen name of John D. Volker, who was a sitting Supreme Court justice for the state of Michigan when he wrote oh, wow. the novel. In 1952, prior to being appointed to the Supreme Court, he was a practicing lawyer who was hired to represent Lieutenant Coleman Peterson. Um, I know we we often say spoilers in this show, which, you know, (laughs) nothing's off boundaries. But if you're someone who maybe listens to the intro and then goes back and watches the movie, I'm just going to basically spoil the movie with the with this true case. But um, Yeah, 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 yeah. Lieutenant Coleman Peterson was a World War II and Korea veteran who was vacationing in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan when he shot and killed a local innkeeper for allegedly raping his wife. Uh, Volker was able to successfully get Peterson found not guilty by reason of insanity based on a little-known precedent from 1886 called the Irresistible Impulse Defense. So, there you go. (laughs) He really wrote what he knew, you know? I mean, it's like beat for... That's the beat for beat what happens in the movie. And you gotta think, like... At that point, say you read that novel and they're like, hey, I know this case. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's funny that he he wrote. A, it's interesting kind of seeing that those authors who like write under a pen name. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about I think it was Dr. Strangelove where the author wrote under a pen name because like they have all this information. They don't want anyone to find out. They're basically yeah. leaking all this information. Yeah. Like a lot of those spy novels back in the day or whatever were, were kind of under pen names or something. Um, and this guy's just like, here's almost, here's my life story in a way. Like, here's my case story that I did. Mm. Um, wow. That's kind of funny. So Volker had previously published three autobiographical books about law that had not sold well, but in 1956, he decided to write a novel. Uh, he said he wanted to talk about a criminal trial, the way it really works. He wrote Mm. the entire book in three months and it was accepted for publication just a few days before he was appointed to the Michigan Supreme court. The book was a smashing success, earning rave reviews as the first legal novel to portray uh, both an attorney's investigation and preparation as as well as the courtroom proceedings, which is something we mm-hmm. talked about last week. You, you know, law and order, but you don't really see a lot of the like 
no. investigation in courtroom movies. You don't see them reading through law books to find the precedent. Yeah, yeah under, and going, under, going to the scene of the crime and interviewing, you know, all the people beforehand. Yeah. Uh, the novel went on to spend 62 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. Wow. <laughs> In uh, 1958, filmmaker Otto Preminger purchased the rights to Volcker's book. Now financially secure from his writing, Volcker immediately retired from the Supreme Court, uh, <laughs> telling the governor of Michigan, other people can write my opinions, but none can write my books. I have learned that I can't do both, so regretfully I must quit the court. Volcker mm -hmm. retired to Frenchman's Pond and spent the rest of his life fly fishing and writing books about fly fishing, as well as a few more legal novels. Wow, he really is his character. <laughs> <laughs> So jump back to Otto Preminger. Now we're yeah. going to do, we got the Volker background. We're going to do a little yeah, bit yeah. of Otto Preminger background because oh, he's, yeah. he's fascinating. Yes. Very unique figure in filmmaking at the time. Mm -hmm. So Preminger originally hailed from Poland, but his family left Poland in the 1920s and moved to Vienna out of fear of the rising anti-Semitism in Poland. Uh, Preminger's father was a state prosecutor in Austria and sent Preminger to law school, but wow. Preminger simultaneously pursued an acting career. Uh, finding little success in acting, which Preminger himself attributed to early onset balding. He uh, instead became the apprentice to Max Reinhardt, a well-known theater producer and director in Vienna, and established a name for himself as a, as a uh, theatrical producer, as a, um, as a, uh, what's the word? Uh, empresario? An empresario, yes. As an empresario. Empresario, yeah. yeah. Um, he, uh, he, received some uh some offers to move to new york and do some broadway work so he left austria in the 20s and moved to new york he didn't spend long in new york before he was lured to hollywood by daryl zanuck the mm. promise of a contract at fox yeah this led to a very contentious relationship that led to zanuck eventually icing primager out of hollywood for five years oh, wow before bringing him back to save a sinking production um I'll save the rest of that story for if we ever do Laura on the podcast, because <laughs> that's, that's what, what happened there. Yep. Yeah. Laura oh. eventually earned five Oscar nominations, which seemed to be enough to squash the beef between Zanuck and Priminger. Yeah. And Priminger became one of Fox's foremost film noir directors during the 1940s. Yeah. Laura being one of the biggest noir films, the early kind of period mm -hmm. is the thing. Yeah. He also became quite famous for his sternness, appearing as an actor in several films, including as a Nazi in Billy Wilder's Stalag 17. He's great uh, in it. <laughs> He's great in it. Yeah. An article from the time notes Preminger is perhaps the most easily recognized director in Hollywood behind Hitchcock. He was, he was someone who really had like wow. a lot of, of prominence. Yeah. In 1953, frustrated with the studio system, Preminger bought himself out of his Fox contract and began producing his own films determined to tackle issues that were forbidden by studios despite the cracks beginning to show in the Hayes Code. And despite his prominence, and perhaps in the same manner as Hitchcock, Preminger was not very well respected as a director in this time. Andrew Saris once said of Preminger, his, his enemies have never forgiven him for being a director with the personality of a producer. That's funny. <laughs> as a filmmaker, Preminger was never concerned with style or themes. His filmmaking is often described as pragmatic. Mm -hmm. He would pick a story, often one pushing the boundaries of what was permissible in Hollywood, and try and present it in the most effective way possible. While this uh, might seem to go against everything the French were celebrating in the rising auteur theory at the time, it was the very same publication that was praising Hitchcock as an auteur, Cahir du Cinema, 
that began singing Preminger's praises as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. It was an article in Cahier du Cinema on Preminger that prompted French critic Jacques Rivette to first apply the theatrical term mise en scène to film, um, calling yeah. it the creation of a precise com- complex of sets and characters, a network of relationships, an architecture of connections, an animated complex that seems suspended in space, something Rivette believed Preminger excelled at. Yeah. It was really interesting. The, the French loved him. And you yeah. know, at, at the exact same time, they're they're. I mean, you can you can love more than one style of filmmaking. Yeah. But like really, at this exact same time, they're praising Hitchcock for being like, you know, you guys yeah. don't get it. He's got all this style and he has all these themes. Yeah. They were like Preminger. They were like, you guys don't get it. This guy knows how to make a movie and he just like <laughs> just does it. Yeah, there's it's like it's like craftsmanship, and he doesn't really draw attention to himself. Say visually, like Hitchcock, not say he draws attention to himself, but like you'll be like oh wow what this amazing shot or the matte paintings or this long tracking shot or whatever mm-hmm. but preminger's very um i guess efficient and very yeah. like he's ve- he's very specific in what he does and i think a lot of his stuff relies more heavily on the ideas and things he's discussing mm-hmm. he's always kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit similar to hitchcock hitchcock did the same thing in terms of of thematic thematic things but primager is definitely doing it specifically here but like primager wouldn't have made vertigo you know it's just like that's that's too that's too intangible for him yeah but like i but like i haven't seen man with the golden arm but i know what it's about Mm. but like that's very much i have seen that one that one's he he deals with like yeah he deals with taboos and stuff and like that are very different for the time yeah um that maybe hitchcock wouldn't do or maybe he would try to do and not succeed in the same way that Preminger does mm-hmm. um i think hitchcock might rely too much on the style of it over over what Preminger or Preminger relies more heavily on the thematic uh thematic ideas yeah. discussed yeah exactly and so you know he had taken a, a, a bit of a gamble to kind of go independent in the fifties. Cause that, yeah. that was before the, the rise of gamble. independent film. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big um, gamble, but it all paid off with 1955's man with the golden arm, okay. um, which was an edgy independent film, but was huge with critics possibly yeah. because of, you know, Sinatra being, being involved, but being Frank Sinatra. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like it was huge for an independent film. And so, you know, with that coming out, with the continued praise with the, from the French, Preminger was becoming one of the first well-known figures in modern independent cinema, which was the, the big deal. Like, mm-hmm. um, and so with some weight behind his name, uh, Preminger purchased the rights to Anatomy of a Murder, a novel about rape and murder that he knew would never be made properly in the Hollywood yeah. studio system. He was like, I have, I have to do this because <laughs> everyone's going to, to cut around it. And I think mm-hmm. with with that in mind, we'll talk about this later. A lot of this, the courtroom stuff is kind of his own, uh, you know, attack on on the studio system because it's so much about like, yeah. oh, we can't we can't say that. Like, we gotta we gotta get away from that. So yeah, talk about that a little bit later on. Yeah, yeah. Um. So he started working on the film, finding the atmosphere of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan in the off-tourism season being an important part of the story. Preminger chose to shoot the entire film on location, uh, making this the first wide-released American feature film to do so. Wow. Yeah. 
while locking down locations in Michigan, including using Volker's own office. Uh, Preminger began casting the film. Uh, Gregory Peck's name is said to have been floated around at the beginning. Okay. That makes but sense. Preminger, Preminger had his eyes set on Stewart. Stewart was kind of in his I'm doing weird stuff era. He yeah, just it's, done. It's post like Harvey's, but it's been a few years since Harvey. I mean, it's it, it, nine Vertigo years was Vertigo was Vert, a year earlier. Vertigo's earlier. 58. Yeah. Vertigo's 58. He's done like Rear Window is 54. He's doing the Anthony Mann westerns mm-hmm. at that at that point, like Naked Spur, Bend of the River. Um, yeah, he's, he, he's he, taking he's taking risks. He is taking ri- in his old age. He's yeah. like, that's the fun. He's taking risk in his old. I mean, he was fifty. I mean, it's like <laughs> he wasn't that old. But people, every time on the show, people just age differently back then. Like yeah. he's like fifty-one in this movie and does not look fifty-one. He yeah. looks he looks like he's older. Um, um, but yeah, that and well, that was also part of it. Preminger liked Stewart's work, and he also thought Peck was too young at the time. Uh, yeah, Stewart's Peck about was, ten years older than than yeah, Peck. Peck. Yeah, Peck was too and young. He, he said that was an important part of the character because even though he's not retired, he is on the downward. He's, he was a DA. He was yeah. lost the election and he, he's kind of settling down. Yeah. Um, and so Stewart signed on for the scandalous character of Laura Mannion. Preminger called Lee Remick first. She was a rising oh. actress who had made an impression on Preminger for her role in the film A Face in the Crowd. I feel like Preminger really liked that movie because uh, yeah, I don't doubt that at <laughs> all. Also very edgy. Yeah, for its time. For the time. Yep. Big fan. Recommend that movie. Check it out. Uh, Remick told Preminger she was pregnant and would be giving birth shortly before production, so Preminger offered her the smaller role of Mary Pallant to have a less grueling shoot schedule. Uh, Remick turned down that offer, and so Preminger gave the role of Laura to Lana Turner. Oh, wow. At some point during rehearsals, however, Turner made it clear that she would not be wearing Laura's modern and at the time risque costumes of of tight sweaters and and pants, <laughs> and she was cut from the film. <laughs> it's kind yeah, of lot, that's 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 very. It's always weird when you hear some of those stories of like why they wouldn't do a role. Mm-hmm. Like it's like I think back of like in Wizard of Oz, like the one of the actresses, I think uh, uh, Jill, I think Gil, Jill. Uh, Sundergaard, I think is her name. I can't remember her name, but she was an actress that like she didn't want to do the the witch because it was gonna make her look ugly, and she was like, "No, nah, I'm not doing that." And like she still, even after it got fame, like after it got big and fame, and the movie was huge, she was like, "Yeah, I still don't regret it." <laughs> like she was just like, "No, nah, I'm not doing it." But yeah, it's like she wouldn't wear pants. But it's like I, Lana Turner is very much of that. Still, like she's a mixture of like old classic Hollywood era and mm. not fully like into the new hollywood era is yeah. the thing yeah so premature called remick back to offer her the part again and remick promptly uh, hung up thinking it to be a joke from her friends who knew she had missed out on the part premature <laughs> had to call her back again to convince her that it was real um mm. rounding out the rest of the cast was an interesting process involving like you said convincing some some well-known studio character actors to join the film and then also kind of balancing it with rising names in theater and, and independent cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be George C. Scott's second feature film. Who uh, He had cut a large wow. name for himself on Broadway, but this was just his second screen appearance. That's insane. Uh, ben Gazzara as well was coming up in theater and, and wasn't wasn't as well-known as, as the independent actor that he would become in the, in the 60s. But... Mm-hmm. One of the toughest roles to cast was District Attorney Mitch Lodwick, but not for lack of trying. Uh, Pat Hingle, who you might know from the yeah. Batman films. 
Batman um, and Spl- Splinter in the Grass. He's yeah. the father in Splinter in the Grass. He was originally cast for the role, but he had to be re- recast after he fell down an elevator shaft in his apartment building and was uh, severely injured. That's why he has a limp in Splinter in the Grass, too. Yeah, he fell 30 That's, feet down. A, yeah. yeah. Um, so Hingle was replaced with TV actor James Daly, who left shortly before filming for a better offer and a play on Broadway. At the last minute, Eve Arden, who was playing Maida, Paul Beegler's whip-smart assistant, recommended her husband, Brooks West, who was a stage actor with almost no screen experience who had accompanied her to Michigan for the production. Uh, West, I think on, the, on the Michigan part, it is, it is great, like great location stuff. I meant to yeah. say that earlier when you were talking about it. It's, a great, it's great locations. It feels it. It feels yeah. like it's there. Yeah, she was just like, yeah, my husband's here. And he, he acts. He acts. He's, he's good, him. right? Yeah, this is like is one good. of his only... He he's did fun. not... He went yeah. back to theater too. Like he was like, "All right, cool." Like if you look him up on IMDb, he has like two things. I actually live, literally love him because like you can tell like he has never dealt with a case of this magnitude before, mm-hmm. and he's bumbling through it for a bit, and then like literally just George he's got's like I'm taking over. Like they literally just it's a it's like a QB switch like in the halftime mm-hmm. is what it feels like. Where Scott's like, "I got this." Like <laughs> you can talk the most when we're in the chambers, but I'm gonna be the one uh cross-examining and examining everyone mm-hmm. uh one of primager one of primager's last casting choices was a cheeky stunt casting move that only he was able to make because he was producer of his own film with no <laughs> studio oversight uh for the role of smart mouth judge weaver he cast joseph n welch who was not an actor but a practicing attorney and a very prominent public figure at the time welch was well known as the man who brought down joseph mccarthy in 1959 Uh, when defending the U.S. Army in a Senate hearing about alleged communism within the armed forces. I'll give you a bit of a history lesson here. If you guys really paid attention in U.S. history, you might roll your eyes, but for everyone else. (laughs) uh, Prior to the hearings, Welch had struck a deal with McCarthy's attorney, Roy Cohn. Boo, we all know (laughs) Roy Cohn, boo. (laughs) Um, Welch had evidence from the Army records that Cohn was a draft dodger. Uh-huh. While Cohn had evidence that a man on Welch's staff was a former communist, they had agreed with each other that neither would bring up that evidence during the hearing. Mm-hmm. But during the hearing, when McCarthy got frustrated with Welch making jokes at Cohn's expense, McCarthy jumps in with what he thinks is the bombshell that Welch has a communist on his staff. Welch's response, famous for his line, have you no sense of decency, Uh, dominated the news cycle for weeks afterwards and is widely considered the first shot that led to the public sentiment turning against Joseph McCarthy. Can we, can we get a, can we get a little sound clip in here? I can't do it. (laughs) I can't do it as good as him. It's a, it's a great. Of him saying it. Yes. It's a great speech. We can can throw it in. We can throw it in. You got it. And and you should watch it. You should watch it as well. There's, there's video of it. It was a televised trial, but it's wild because you just see Cohen like, like he doesn't do a, a literal face palm, but when McCarthy yeah. hops in, he's like, "Well, you you have a communist on your staff," and comes just like, "Oh no, we had, <laughs> we had agreed not to do this." Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. Look, look, you've done enough. Have right. you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? um supposedly welch welch like like tears up while he's doing it because he's like you were ruining this man's life he's been like helping us out he's helping protect the u.s army and you're trying to like destroy this man's life he's like tears up and then supposedly when he left the uh like as soon as the door closed behind him when he left the senate hearing room he like winked at one of his assistants and was like how did i do so (laughs) 
maybe more of an actor than you would think. Yeah, people, yeah, people let on. Yeah, they let on. But this is uh, this is his his one and only on screen role. He's appearing he's, as the judge. He, he's funny in it. One of the weirdest sections when we talk this later. But the, one of the weirdest parts is like when he's like, "I think we or let's not make a federal case out of this or whatever," and that just like cuts him just like waiting, playing with his like with his like uh his uh, watch. Mm-hmm. It's just it's such a weird moment. <laughs> So, um, let's do some, let's do some favorite scenes. Okay. Um, there's a lot and there's, it's a big movie. It's a very big movie. Um, <laughs> it's a long movie. I mean, I really love the section, the section at the beginning when Stuart is trying to put I me, mean, he's trying to put the pieces together the entire movie, mm-hmm. but that early part where he's like, he's interviewing, ben, he's interviewing, uh, um, Mr. Mannion, and then interviewing Mrs. Mannion, and then interviewing Mr. Mannion again, mm-hmm. and it's like he's trying to see what if the stories change. Like he's trying to see if he believes them, and it's that kind of second one where it's like he's really you're seeing how cunning he can be. Where yeah. he's like with that with that cigarette rolling it, mm-hmm. and he's mm-hmm. he's he's like he's gone in there. He's like, I'm not going to tell this guy, hey, you need to plead temporary insanity, insanity, but I'm going to get need, him there. To, yeah, I'm going to get him there. It's like I don't. That's not a good argument or whatever. It's like that's it's like self defense doesn't do well in, in this or whatever. It's just like he's mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and then it's like once he kind of lands on it, it's like okay, cool, I'm done, and he just leaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this you know. Throughout this, there's a lot to say in this movie, and, and you know this is very Preminger. It's never like witness coaching is bad, but like yeah. throughout the movie, there's all these little indictments of of witness yes. coaching in, in the court system, and yes. and and that's kind of a line that that uh, Beegler's draws is like I'm not going to. I could tell him to say this. I'm not going yes. to. Like no, he's he's got to come to it on his own. Yes, because like later on, it's like he'll have it's who is the one is it, it's it's one of the like is it the autopsy person or no it's the one or the sheriff or whatever the, the yes the sheriff when he says that she had troubles with, yeah, with Barney yeah and they're like oh well who told th- th- did she say that oh no well who said were you told to say that by someone today yes and it's just like okay we're like we're cutting through this thing mm-hmm. and seeing what's what's actually happening yeah yeah well and he, he he kind of alludes to the same thing with um with uh what's the, what's the mayor's name in this one? Oh, murray <laughs> hamilton yeah. oh, oh with, with uh, uh but yeah he, yeah with, yeah when he's like describing the way that that he looked that lieutenant mannion looked when he came yeah. in he was like oh yeah well why can't you say the same did, did barney look the same way it's like yeah oh, curious yeah it's, he, he's very much like he he it's the thing about this movie that with law with law in general with the legal stuff at least with the high profile stuff it's like it's really about how you word things mm-hmm. a lot of the time like i always find it interesting to see stewart again again we're talking about comparison which i never really thought about talking about comparison to like how to tackle the the code the production mm-hmm. code at the time of how stewart is trying to sneak things in there you know what mm-hmm. i mean it's like he's trying to sneak certain turns of phrases or certain lines of questioning to open the door a yeah. little bit yeah. that's what he's trying to do. he's trying to open the door a little bit wider each time and you have these the 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 mr dancer and the the other attorneys so George C. scott's character mr dancer like pushing the door closed pushing mm-hmm. the door closed and then finally it gets that great scene when he's just like it's like trying to take a, the core out of the apple without cutting through the you apple. You gotta let me cut into that. And apple. he's like, "You, it's that great." He's like, "You gotta let me cut into the apple," and that's that's the like, 
the literally the turning point of the movie and also the trial pretty mm. early on when the judge kind of sits there for a minute and he's just like i'll allow it and the whole crowd just goes like like the the like audible gasp and mm-hmm. the crowd of like okay cool we're about to talk about some shit we haven't talked about before is yeah. like what it comes off as like and it's both in the trial but also in terms of hollywood and film at that period of time yeah it's like we're going to talk about we're going to talk about rape we're going to talk about sexual assault we're going to talk about possible domestic violence we're going to open this thing up yeah and, and you guys were happens. you know everyone here was cool with talking about a murder in depth but you're all yeah. you know can we talk about when we open up the idea of sex in some any form of sex and possible violent sex in some way or a, a a intrusion of some kind we don't want to talk about we don't want to talk about mm-hmm. the realities of this world and maybe how how uh how how mean or how despicable humans can be and men can be against say women in mm. this specific instance but yeah. he made but thing about the movie is that he, it makes every character complex in some way yeah it's like ben gazera and lee rimmick are not like clean cut innocent individuals at no. all it's actually there's like a we the the ending was as we get farther in it's like it's a very like it's a big question mark mm-hmm. on whether or not this whole trial was fake or what was was under like false pretenses with the story yeah like it's very much out there lingering essentially yeah. and that all feels very preminger it's like you know it he does. never he has so many things to say in this movie but he never hits it nope. over the head like nope. we just said this this the whole thing about like everyone is so scandalized by talking about sex but they're all fine talking about a dude getting shot five times yeah um you know, a lot when you, when you look up a lot of critique of this film, a lot of of modern critique looking back at it, they call it um, uh, a pre-feminist text because it okay. was really, really before kind of the rise of, of, of first wave, well, second wave feminism. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and, and it's never going like it, it's it's never picking up some kind of like cause and, and championing it. But no. it, it it just pokes a lot of holes. And it asks a lot of questions about society, but um, but like yeah, like we were saying, it, it has a lot to say too about the Hayes Code and the studio system and the in the way you know, that's another scene where they're talking about when when undergarments first come up. Pa- yeah, 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 with panties. It's yeah, like, and they like, say panties. They call everyone to the bench and they're like, "All right, we have to establish it now. What are we going to call these?" And and Georgie e. Scott has that line about like, "I heard a French word when I was in the in, in the forces, but like, it I don't think that's, that's appropriate either." Yeah. <laughs> And then the judge has that, like, he gets up and he's just like, and I mean, it, it, it is, it is, it's, it's funny, but it's also kind of shocking. Like he's standing, like they are in the middle of talking about a sexual assault and yes. the judge stands up and is like, from here on, we're going to refer to these items of clothing as panties. And everyone just like bursts out into laughter. And, and, yeah. and, and I mean, the judge is, he's, he, he know, he's right he, to expect that. He's like, all right, that's the last time you're going to laugh at that word. Yeah. I'm going to kick you out of my courtroom. If you so much as, as smile, smile the next time yeah. you hear the word panties. And, yeah. um, and I mean, there's, they say a lot worse in this movie, but, um, yeah. it does, but, it definitely has something to say about like censorship and this idea of being like, yeah, you guys can talk about guns and murder all day long with ease, with ease. <laughs> and, and we're just trying to talk honestly about, about, you know, domestic violence and sexual assault and, and yeah. you're, you're so scandalized by it. Yeah. And trying to figure out what the, what, what is happening here. I mean, it's like, it's talking about like how what the like the port the picture that say the, the the attorneys are trying to paint like george c scott would say lee remick with laura Mannion 
It's like he's basically trying to paint her as oh, this yeah. town, this town slut. Yeah, what it's, it is. it's all slut shaming. It's basically like because he's kind of like saying like, oh, what was she wearing? It's almost basically well, she was if she was wearing that, she was kind of asking for. Is like what it's kind of coming off as. Oh yeah, that that it's entire very, yeah. that entire direct examination scene of With, of yeah. uh, the bartender, Alphonse, yeah, Alphonse Murray Hamilton, yeah, is is like a textbook like how not to approach yeah. sexual assault. He's like, oh, what was she wearing? Oh, was she drunk? How drunk was she? Oh, she was pretty drunk. Was she was she being nice to him? Oh, she was being nice to him. It's like, no, none of those things. She was giggling. She was, jump, she was jumping up and down. Yeah, and how was she little, moving her body? How, how, oh, she yeah. was swaying her hips. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, it is like just just spelling out like slut shaming. Yeah, and making one, two, it three. Her, yeah. her fault that, that Barney would be tempted mm-hmm. to do such things. Um but it like but with as you can it, it it does lay the kind of foundation of like was this an affair or was this rape is the mm-hmm. thing it's like kind of, that's the kind of the the gray area of this is that you keep painting her in this portrait this picture and if it was just that you would think this is just like a despicable attorney doing this but then you also see her out several times drunk with men and you're kind of one while her husband's in, in prison and you get the kind of like the the little hints of like you see that ben Gazer is a very jealous individual mm-hmm. and, and like violent. and violence at the at the just the the drop of a hat pretty much when it when that when that inmate kind of makes a comment about uh lara mm-hmm. and and he throws him up against the the jail cell and you're like well if he's doing that, doing that to this guy what would happen if he found that his wife was having an affair on him with a, another man or or a rape as well it's like it could be he could have that same reaction no matter which version of the story you're following i think if mm-hmm. it was a rape or if it was an affair i think he did the same exact thing both times um but it is that's a big question mark of like what where was the truth in all this because as you find out it's like even as like you're on the side of jimmy stewart you begin to find out things that like they didn't tell Paul uh, Paul Beagler or whatever, mm-hmm. like the rosary bit or whatever. Yeah. And he finds out and like, why would you do this? Like, this is going to make you, be- this is going to make the jury think you didn't believe her when you told her. And if yeah. you didn't believe her, that means you had doubts about things she was saying. Um, but yeah. A- anyway, what's one of your favorite scenes where we're going on, going around the, the thoughts and the ideas about this, but what is one of your favorite scenes? um i mean i feel like i'm jumping jumping forward a little bit but that's um, fine the the kind of the big george c scott cross-examination moment is is and that that plays back into like we talked about the kind of slut shaming before because he he tries to pull it again on mary plant and and then you have that he's just pushing and pushing and pushing her because and, and you know that he thinks that she was Barney's mistress because he's listened to the town gossip. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Like, oh, everyone thinks she's she lives the hotel that he that he he owns. Like he's she's always around him. No, she kind of came out of nowhere in town. Mm-hmm. He she must be this mistress. She's a young woman needs a place to stay, needs some money, and he's like her sugar daddy is kind of yeah. the thing is what's kind of coming there's, off as. There's a great moment in that scene too where. Um, Paul objects and the judge is like, just a minute, let's see where he's going. And he asks like two more questions, like continuing to badger her. And then the judge is yeah. like, now you can, now, now you can. Now you can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and then that's when they like make him come out and just they're yeah. like you know just say what you're getting at and yeah. and then he's like everyone knows you're barney's mistress and she gives yeah. that no he was my father and scott is just like oh i just lost yep. it. i just lost yep. the case and you yep. can just see you it on his face you never you never ask a question you do not know the answer to in a courtroom yep. that's like that's like rule number one about being a lawyer well i don't i don't know law that well but about being I, that's rule number one about being a screenwriter, screenwriter. For, <laughs> for legal thrillers never ask a question you don't know the answer to and he asked a question he didn't know the answer to and it was incredibly detrimental to his case mm-hmm. we're like it was over because he was hinging on well you're protecting him because you're having an affair with him like blah blah, blah. like you're you're a slut for doing this and you're just blah blah, blah. and that becomes no i'm a, i'm his are you yeah, yeah you were jealous that he was stepping out on you basically is what he's kind of mm-hmm. the argument he's leading and it's like no he's my father like, oh shit we're done yeah um and that's just another thing where preminger excels because i think a lesser filmmaker at some point in this movie you know you'd see a scene where like george c scott's calling someone toots or something and you'd be like oh that yeah. guy's a misogynist but like He's not an out and out, or as far as we know, he's not an out and out misogynist, but his misogyny in the courtroom leads to his downfall. The way that he treats specifically her, he treats her the exact same way that he treats Laura. Mm -hmm. He obviously views both of them as, you know, tramps or, yeah. 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 And, and, and the way that he treats her gets him, gets him riled up and, and makes him stumble and make a mistake. Yeah. And Stuart, I think, because Paul lets him do it. Mm-hmm. There's a few times where he'll 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 object. He's you know what? Let's see where this goes. Yeah. I'm gonna take my objection back. Yeah. Let's just see where this goes. Because I know the he, answer. He knows he's about to hang himself with whatever whatever thing. How much how much he's giving himself? He's gonna hang himself. Um, and speaking of that, it's like I love Stewart's interplay with um scott but also just in the in in in, in the court in general mm-hmm. like he's got that both... great line where he's like well i'm, I'm just a little I'm country old, lawyer. Old, i'm an old country lawyer <laughs> trying to match wits with this young with this young talented lawyer from lansing from the Michigan, big city of the big city it's so great because like because stewart's character talking about the razzle dazzle of it all it's like he's aware it's a show and mm-hmm. he's like oh, let me play up that like i'm this i'm a local i'm just doing my job i'm helping out a young soldier who served our country who has is married with to, the, to this beautiful woman like i'm helping them when this when this young hotshot lawyer from the big city who's much more intelligent than me and much seen more court cases than I'll ever see probably already in his young life. I'm just trying to, to step up to his level. So I have to do whatever I can to make sure this is a fair trial. Well, that's a, uh, that's another great scene is, you know, you have him doing the fly tying throughout. Yeah. And then when they finally go for the recess in the judge's office, and he's got the little fly and he's like oh why don't oh, you yeah. open it to this book right here he's like you you can keep that you know that's yeah that's, <laughs> just like god this guy is he's doing every so good. trick yeah he's doing every trick and, and like, that's and that's they, when it really hits scott you know because yeah. they come in and they're like yeah he's not they're like yeah we're gonna give you a chance to change your plea because we just established that he knew the difference between right and wrong and then yeah. he's like oh here's this precedent from 1886 and that's when scott's like Oh, this guy really is craftier than than we thought he was. <laughs> than we thought he was, yeah. and that's what he's like. When they like, oh, do you want to want, read the read the court case? I think I'm aware of it. It's yeah. like what he says. <laughs> I think I have a recollection of it. Um, and yeah, I love again the Scott Stewart dynamic. Is like it's the scene 
when he's when she, when he's when he's uh, cross examining Lara, uh, uh, dancer is, and he keeps standing in front of Stuart, mm-hmm. and Stuart's head keeps like popping around, and he moves the chair, and then and then dancer moves, and he just he do, they do it for a while, mm-hmm. and then Stuart's like. Uh, he he keeps blocking my he keeps blocking my view from my client he's like oh i'm sorry no i was blocking his signals to his Mm -hmm. client or whatever and it's like no i just want to be able to see my client so you're not like like doing anything to her and and like intimidating her in this questioning um but yeah the pay i think the pace of the movie is great for for a two hour and 40 minute movie Mm -hmm. i think it it handles it very well i think just because you have these issues that are happening and I think they they make everything so gray and almost mysterious in a way because it is kind of a mystery at, at the core of like did these things happen the way it did? It keeps you engaged mm-hmm. throughout. I feel and he, yeah, and he, he's such an interesting character to follow because that is part yes. of you know that, that's part of his wiles is playing that you know I, I, another scene I love is when he goes to the bar for the first time and meets Alphonse for the first time and yeah and he's just kind of wandering around and he, you know he finds those gun holsters and immediately puts that together in his head yeah he's like and, oh this is what happened yeah and and, and then alphonse comes out and he's like, oh i'm just i'm just looking around i'm looking at these trophies oh uh, yeah yeah oh let me ask you this kind of thing um yeah. yeah he's 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 so he's so smart but he's also so good at you know and that's that's what jimmy stewart brings to the role too is yeah. he's so unassuming and yeah. um and and yeah, I love I love the way they 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 do the character here. I love the way he's written, but I also absolutely love the way Stuart plays him. Yeah, it's like I love again. I said I love the way he like he he handles everything. If it's the like spinning his 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 cigarette or cigar, whatever he has, like has oh, his Italian cigar. He has Italian cigars, and he's like, mm-hmm. and like that's when you know he's like thinking or like he's going up to a jazz club to play with duke ellington or whatever like, to play, like just like to like he's just a dude who's like he's i'm old like i've i fish i i enjoy my italian cigars and i go to a jazz club like that's yeah. my that's what i do and i like, love oh, that I should probably um, make some money at some point i love the scene when they're playing uh, or when they're waiting on the verdict and he's just yes. kind of playing on the piano and everyone's just the the, the legal team is just kind of sitting around uh waiting on what's going to happen uh, yeah. what's the song he starts like playing on the oh i can't remember they, yeah um, they bring up they bring a song up and he just starts like playing it like jazz style yeah it's great and they're just like what do you do because why because i think i think the the uh parnell is like why are you playing all that like why can't you play more like oh yeah play danny boy why can't you play, play danny, danny boy and yeah, then he starts danny like boy. playing jazz danny boy yeah Dan, jazz, yeah and he's just like oh gosh he can't we can't get enough of this but yeah it's like <laughs> if, again to add that kind of like jazzy score it's like you're you're seeing you're seeing this transition into a new era of film mm-hmm. and while this movie's going on in several w- ways. And I just, I find that fascinating as like a fan of transitional periods, like in stories in some way, mm-hmm. this is just like a key one that I think doesn't get discussed as much. Like it's like, everyone kind of talks about psycho as an example, mm-hmm. like as of like, psycho comes out a year later and i don't know if you're talking about this later in the, in the show or not in your kind of aftermath stuff but like it's like they're kind of both pushing boundaries mm-hmm. and psycho is the one that gets more revered yeah. i think yeah the psycho is the one where everyone's like oh hitchcock's going independent like look at this yeah but He's it's doing like the, she's this, in a bra like it's like it's, yeah, it's yeah. a big deal content pushing as well but i, I think yeah. from like a you know a studio director going independent i think this is this feels so much more polished like i love psycho but this feels so much more polished yeah. than psycho 
um for you yeah. know kind of an independent production from a from a director yeah i don't have any other fur any any further scenes but i do want to shout out eve arden and just like every scene that she's in she's great. she's great I, I actually i do have one more scene when they when they meet mary for the first time yeah and and he's just like not even listening to her just watching mary walk back and forth and then he's finally like all right well we need to we need to talk to her and we need to find her and yeah it, she's, and she's made like, us like she's the one serving us right now <laughs> <laughs> oh oh or like i i love it's like uh when like when he keeps like where's parnell and it's like uh oh i can't tell you you're fired you have to pay me to fire yeah, you can't me. fire it's me like, until you yeah, pay me until you pay me she's great she, she it's it's just a great role your Honor, how can the jury accurately estimate the testimony being given here unless they first know the reason behind this whole trial? Why Lieutenant Mannion shot Barney Quill? Now, the prosecution would like to separate the motive from the act. Well, well, that's, that's like trying to take the core from an apple without breaking the skin. Well, now, the core of our defense is that the defendant's temporary insanity was triggered by this so-called trouble with Quill. And I begged the court, I, I begged the court to let me cut into the apple. All right, so moving on to Onset Life. Uh, the film shot over a two-month period in the spring of 1959 with a bit of a time crunch placed on them as tourists would be flooding the area once summer <laughs> arrived. Um, it's, it's like a summer movie, but not. Yeah. So it comes there you go. <laughs> uh, the film's production budget was $2 million, the equivalent of about $20 million today. Still not, an indie film nowadays. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> Still an indie film. Uh, not much is written about the production of the film, as the normally uh, volatile Preminger was notably calm on this set. Uh, Preminger was very famous for his for his outbursts and his temper tantrums, mm -hmm. and was often known to kind of pick one person on a movie to be his enemy. Uh, that's like John Ford. I think yeah. John Ford did some similar things. Preminger specifically hated uh, method actors. And so it was well known. Like if you were method, like don't bring that to a Preminger set because he's don't not going to stand for it. Don't bring that shit here. Yeah. Strangely, <laughs> Joan Crawford loved him. They got along really well. What? <laughs> oh, that sounds like Joan Crawford. <laughs> Um, but many attribute Preminger being so level-headed on this set to the presence of Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I can uh, see with that. Several actors on set saying that Stewart kept Preminger in check. Uh, Stewart continued to praise Preminger for the rest of his career, saying one of his regrets later in life was not working with Preminger more. Wow. So there you go. Good guy Jimmy Stewart strikes again. Yeah. <laughs> That's got to be wild to be like, you know, just be Jimmy Stewart at this point in your career and just be yeah. like... Oh, all shucks Jimmy Stewart and be going back be, back and forth between Hitchcock and Preminger and Anthony Mann like, it's just like, <laughs> like just going it's like doing like weird westerns and or like kind of like violent westerns yeah Stewart's an interesting point because I think it's 58 when he does Bell Book and Candle I believe as well mm. also with Kim Novak who's also in Vertigo mm -hmm. but like I think or maybe it's the same year but like I just remember I think it was that movie it was like yeah I'm not gonna be the romantic love interest in any movies going forward <laughs> Because they were just like the the age gap was just so apparent mm -hmm. between the two, he was just like, yeah. Well, it, it works in Vertigo because it's supposed it to be creepy. But... It's supposed to be creepy, but like Bell Book and Candle, which is it's a it's a fun movie and a, a beautiful looking film sh sh shot by uh, James Wong Howe. It's just like, oh yeah, I'm I'm much older than Kim Novak, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and I'm and she's supposed to like like hope like fall in love with me, like and just like fall head over heels in love with me in this movie and he's like look at me 
<laughs> look at me. <laughs> yeah, it's look just how, I, I, I get I get mad when people are like all like people who've seen like Wonderful Life and maybe Mr. Smith are like, yeah, yeah, you know, Jimmy Stewart, he's just like that all shucks guy. And it's like, yeah, have you seen <laughs> in in your mind in that case, he's like on the set of Vertigo, like, oh, shucks, Alfred, we're going to be making oh, a movie about necrophilia. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> well, 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 you see here, I, I just, I'm just want to say panties. That's all I want to say. <laughs> panties. <laughs> yeah, he he, um, he was really yeah, like you said, especially later in his career, to be making making the moves and the choices that he was making, I think is yeah, is is really fascinating. And then and then to go into like who man who shot Liberty Valance like two years later, which is mm-hmm. kind of like, I mean he 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 had a, he had he I mean he still worked till the seventies and pretty much after this but like this feels like kind of the last act of his career mm-hmm. like from kind of here i think a lot of people will throw i haven't seen fly of the phoenix but everyone like that's one mm-hmm. that everyone really loves but like it's kind of here is like you go from vertigo and the bell book and candle and abby murder man shot liberty valance and that's kind of the last like big chunk where he's just like releasing some great movies yeah and the rest are kind of like i'm just making fun westerns is kind of what it feels like yep um, so to get into the aftermath, uh, mm-hmm. after wrapping the movie in early May, Preminger screened a preview of the film in Chicago on June 18th, having cut the entire feature together in 21 days. That's insane. That for, was a, for, was, this, for this period of time, that's insane. Yeah, it was a record. It, it was the fastest cut wide release film at the time. And like, it's again, it's two hours and 40 minutes. Like, that's the other thing. Yeah, well, a review in Variety at the film's release blames the short editing process for leaving the film, quote-unquote, overlong. But it's interesting that 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 review finds little else to critique. Like, everything else is great. Yeah. Um, Bosley Crowther for the New York Times wrote... uh, Bosley. This is all all from him. After watching an endless succession of courtroom melodramas that have more or less transgressed the bounds of human reason and rules of advocacy... It is cheering and fascinating to see one that hews magnificently to a line of dramatic but reasonable behavior and proper procedure in a court. Such a one is Anatomy of a Murder, which opened at the Criterion in the Plaza yesterday. It is the best courtroom melodrama this old judge has ever seen, outside of the fact that this drama gets a little tiring in spots in its two hours and 40 minutes, most of which is spent in court. It is well nigh flawless as a picture of an American court at work of small town American characters and of the average sordidness of crime. Yeah. Great. Great way to put it. Great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Great way to put it. I think it's with, and we'll talk about it a little bit and what worked, but like, it's just, it's a really so entrenched in the world of a trial mm-hmm. is like what this movie does. And everyone loves courtroom dramas or a lot of love courtroom dramas, but I feel like this is one that really gets to the heart of like the prep of it. The like, rarely do you see like in a, in a, in a courtroom drama, them going to the library, looking through, looking through this. precedents. I found, I found it. And I found this precedent to hint that hinges on the, or this, it will, our entire case will hinge on this precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's a big part of law and discuss in the, and, and discussing law and finding out like, Oh, because it's been done before we can now do it in this case and it's great that it establishes early on that that both paul and mccarthy are uh are kind of you know legal nerds because then it doesn't yeah. feel like an ex machina they're both like well let's hit the library oh, yeah. and then like yeah. oh we found this one like they, they're both got you know mccarthy's not even practicing anymore but he still likes to sit yeah. around and read law books while they while they drink 
Yeah, it's like oh, oh, we, we they just lo- love discussing the law mm-hmm. is what it is. Um, and and, and if you want to like t- say, put it to movies, it feels like a bunch of movie people discussing. Okay, can we push this boundary if it's mm-hmm. been done somewhere else before? Well, let's go see. Let's go watch a movie and see if they do it or whatever. It's like it just feels like we're they're trying to use examples of pra- past stuff to really push how to t- tackle this movie. Mm-hmm. Many critics praise the film for its moral ambiguity, its frankness, and its willingness to push boundaries when the story called for it. Audiences didn't necessarily feel the same, and Preminger faced several court cases over the scandalous film. The mayor of Chicago banned the film in the entire city for its explicit material, and Preminger had to file a motion in federal court to appeal the decision. Eventually, the mayor's decision was overruled as the court determined most of the explicit language was used in a clinical sense for the benefit Mm -hmm. of a legal proceeding. Mm-hmm. Another lawsuit faced both the publisher of the novel and Columbia Pictures, who distributed the film, from the daughter of the real-life victim of the Peterson case, saying the book and the film were both too close to the actual facts of the case. The suit was eventually dismissed in 1961. I mean, I think she would have a case, honestly, just based, yeah. on, <laughs> based on all that. Yeah. Uh, despite scandals over the film and many theaters running the film with a warning about the content and a time before the MPAA rating system... Yeah. Rave reviews from critics did push audience to the theaters, and the film made $5.5 million on its $2 million budget, equaling about $55 million today, and eventually earned another $8 million on home video, leading to the modern gross of the film to be about $100 million. Wow. So, not bad. Man, that's that's pretty good for a movie of this caliber, honestly. The film was nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Supporting or Best Actor for Jimmy Stewart, which was the last nomination of his career, Best yeah. Supporting Actor for Arthur O'Connell, Best Supporting Actor for George C. Scott, which was his first nomination, Best Screenplay, and Best Editing. Uh, and and won none of them. It looks like won none, and it was the only film that year to be nominated for Best Picture and not Best Director. Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting year. You got um, Ben Hur is that year, which is the big mm-hmm. like winner. I think that's I think when we Oscar did wins. I think when we did our our Oscars redo, I think I we we exchanged Ben Hur for Anatomy of a Murder. Did we not? What else was that year? Uh, Diary of Anne Frank, The Nun Story, Room at the Top. Here's one that's not nominated, but is in Best Director, and that's Some Like It Hot. Hmm. So something like a hot, not a best picture nominee, but best director nominee. Yeah, I'm I'm almost positive we we exchanged Anatomy of a Murder for Ben Hur. Yeah, and I and I like Nun Story. I think Audrey Hepburn's actually great in Nun Story. I've never seen Diary of Anne Frank or Room at the Top. So I'll check those out at some point <laughs> in my life if I have a chance. But yeah, it's Ben Ben Hur. I've also never seen Ben Hur. Uh, I'll admit that I've never seen Ben. Have you seen Ben Hur? Yeah, I have. Don't worry about it. You're fine. <laughs> I'm. You know, it's one you got to put it in context. Like, yeah, the the stunts were groundbreaking at the time, but yeah, yeah. Not, that's a, not a sword and sandal guy. I'm not. I. That's why I haven't really watched it. I'm not. I mean, that's. I don't know if that's sword and sandal in like a fantasy sense, but it is a sword and sandal movie. Uh, but yeah, I've just never. I never gravitate towards those. So uh, Duke Ellington's score was not nominated at the Academy Awards, but it won the Grammy for Best Score that year. Uh, His score for the film has been noted by film historians and music historians as being the first music written by an African-American artist that was presented as non-diegetic, 
in a Hollywood film. And it was also the first authentic jazz score for a film. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, the, the film noirs kind of used jazz scores, but it was, you know, the approximation of jazz by a traditional film yeah. composer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like more like it's the, um, the improv type jazz is what mm. it feels like. That's the thing about Duke Ellington is it can feel at this point in time, feel very like improv because that's jazz is jazz. Jazz can be this improvisational type form of music. Um, and Duke Ellington, like say Thelonious Monk would do, do that type jazz at this point in time. And yeah, Hollywood wise, they weren't really capturing that. And I think Duke Ellington kind of sets up, a path for Quincy Jones to come mm-hmm. in, in the sixties and really make jazz score more dominant than yeah. it ever been before. Mm-hmm. Um, Saul Bass's poster for the film, which mirrors the body design of the opening credits, uh, went on to be voted number one in premieres top movie poster of all time list. Really? Yep. When was that list out? Like, uh, 2010. Wow. That's still, that's very recent for to be number one. But it's a great design. Saul Bass, for those that don't know, was a phenomenal designer. Gra- I mean, a, a graphic designer, I guess maybe mm-hmm. is the word. I mean, to put, but tile sequences did a lot of Hitchcock stuff. That's why it's like it's this this poster very much feels like it could be a Hitchcock movie, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the film itself has a lasting legacy, topping many lists of greatest American films and best courtroom films, and currently sits with a one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So if we didn't convince you, Rotten Tomatoes should. That's what I'm saying. So, Brandon, what works in Anatomy of a Murder? Um, well, again, I, guess I know one of the quotes I see is like, they consider this the, the probably the finest pure trial movie ever made. I think UCLA mm-hmm. put one of the, a UCLA professor said that. Like, it's very much a, from what I know about law, uh, it tackles law in a very realistic way of how to mm-hmm. how to again we talked about how it you see the prep work goes into it of how interviewing interviewing witnesses interviewing going to the scene of the crime uh really trying really like like weighing the options of like should i defend this person or not and what mm-hmm. that will do to me um the way it kind of portrays the like class system within a courtroom drama in a weird way, but also brings this idea of like, like the military aspect with, um, with Mr. Ma- with, with Mannion's uh, profession, but like the way it tries to tackle all these things uh, in one big movie, uh, Preminger handles it incredibly well. Mm-hmm. And what also helps is that the cast is so incredibly fantastic at their jobs that, it works. It's like from top to bottom, you have these talented character actors popping in to be a witness or to be uh, the secretary or to be whatever. It's like, it really carries this movie through. And then you have Mm -hmm. someone like Stewart at the helm in terms of the acting wise, that kind of set, he's setting the tone on set. That's the big thing that I think I'm going to find out this month. It's like, you always have that kind of actor who sets the tone if it's henry Mm -hmm. fonda who's the big star who's showing up to do the same rehearsal the character actors are if it's jimmy stewart keeping a calm demeanor on set to to balance out the possible hostile environment a director can create um it's a key component i think for some reason yeah yeah and i think it's so um you know it's with with the cast it's so important that they were pulling 
independent actors because this is still in the yeah. studio system time where people yeah you know were on contracts and and to be able to to pull these people who are doing broadway who are doing independent theater in new york yeah um yeah. Get, gets you such a different style of acting which i think also mm-hmm. lends itself to that kind of like veritas feel of of preminger is like this is real <laughs> yeah this is real yeah you've this never seen a- any of these people before except jimmy stewart so yeah. like you're just you're you're you, it's that so you don't have you're not coming with baggage with the actor who's who's like who ben gazera for example that's mm-hmm. why you're like wait is he telling the truth or is he not? Well, well, Jimmy Stewart's defending him, so he must be telling the truth, right? <laughs> but he doesn't seem like he is. But we trust Jimmy Stewart, right? It's just like it's an interesting kind of like dynamic you have with the cast because everyone's kind of unknown to them. Mm-hmm. And you're relying on Stewart's persona to carry you through. But so but yeah, you don't know like is is George C. Scott a terrible person because of we, we don't have we don't have any preconceived notions around these actors is kind right. of what helps it yeah um and i also love going back to that transitional period it's just it the way it it's pushing the boundaries in a way where it's it's walking a tightrope it's like you're talking about how oh they could discuss these terms because it was done in a clinical way through a court case that's still like you to 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 be smart enough to and clever enough to do that in that way in a way that's opening the door for later things. That's the thing. It's, like it's opening the door, like Stuart putting in phrases or whatever. It's opening the door for that code to get more lenient and mm-hmm. to possibly go away. Yeah. That's what, that's what this trial Cause like, Oh, well, anatomy emerges all these words. And so like, you can't say that people aren't ready to hear them cause they just did it. And that made a lot of money and got a lot of Oscar nominations. Like it. Yeah. It kind of, it's, it's pushing the boundaries in a way that it opens it up for later films. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and to go along with that kind of with the pushing the boundaries, I think what really works here is, is Preminger's style of yeah. storytelling and that we're, we're, we've got so many issues, so many social issues being hit mm-hmm. on here. And he, he never, he never like tries to drive any of them home in a way that I feel like a studio film would. Yeah. You know, we're talking, I mean, you know, we're, one thing we haven't even brought up that they, they kind of accuse um they they kind of accuse lieutenant Mannion at one point of having ptsd like they're they're hitting on so many things in this movie they're talking about sexual assault they're talking about slut shaming they're talking about ptsd yeah talking about domestic violence and and none of it is like none of it ever feels after school special and you're like no it doesn't this is one of the first movies to talk about any of this stuff and they're just they're just hitting it all and that's that you know every everything you read about preminger the the word pragmatic always comes up where he's just Mm -hmm. like gonna make a movie about this and we're just we're gonna go we're just gonna do it we're gonna do it yeah <laughs> and and that's that's he's he's just consistent and, and you know if anything from what we know about the the author as well very pragmatic he's like yeah I'm, yeah i'm gonna write this book i'm just gonna take this my case files from this one case and <laughs> just gonna write it out you know yeah um and so yeah you get this very true grounded feel throughout and it and it never it, it has so many different things to say mm-hmm. about where society was at that time but it's never like you know it's never to take from the the joker it's it's never we live in a society it's never like <laughs> it's never like look it's at this that. look at look, look at, at what this. i'm saying here yeah. yeah look at me i'm preaching to you of what we should be doing or whatever yeah and and yeah so yeah it does all that 
Um, love the score. I think the score, score is, is great. Duke Ellington's score is great. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, I agree completely. And, and it adds a little bit more flavor to have that score and then to also have Paul yeah. be into jazz adds yeah. a little bit more flavor. Like, oh, maybe he's this guy's not as like staunch as the rest yeah. of these, these small town people and are. It, and again, you got to think too, in a filmmaking perspective, even though the jazz is not, it's not like wall to wall jazz music in this movie, it lightens the movie enough. Mm-hmm. what well, doesn't feel like an old and stodgy t- three-hour courtroom drama yeah. you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it's not like big brass coming in at certain moments and making it emotional or sentimentality it's just like no it's fun and light and and you're yeah. hopping around is what it feels like and and that's a really cool vibe to have yeah like, and, and, it, and you know we brought it up several times in the favorite scenes like there's there's a lot of really fun banter in this movie as much as yeah. we talked about these heavy subjects they're approaching it's a lot yeah. of really fun banter in these movies and, and like, Stewart is charming as ever so it's 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 fun it's a fun yeah. watch it's like it's it's just like I, I think about like I love the guy who tries to get who talks about the bourbon stuff where he's just like oh I drank all that when he's, when he's like basically before the big case they're they're mm. doing the case of like a guy who stole bourbon he's like oh yeah I stole it I drank it all he's like oh, I'm I'm guilty as hell basically <laughs> what he's saying um but yeah it's just it's fun it's just it, there's moments of fun again talking about the fishing and like Parnell just like randomly driving a car and smiling it's just like there's there's like a lightness to certain moments in this movie that that balances out the darkness that's being discussed in the courtroom and it, it, it looks great for being a not for being a not flashy filmmaker yeah preminger still it, it still again, looks great i love so going what worked i again i said earlier i love the use of the town mm-hmm. i love that scene when like stewart's driving up in the town you get kind of the main street and the the blint the 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 traffic lights blinking because it's late at night and there's no point in having it working so it's just basically like a cost like a yield basically mm-hmm. and like it's just the, the lights that kind of shine like, that kind of illuminate the streets it's it's really kind of gorgeous when you, you know, like it feels like we're now in a hollywood back lot we're not like in socal we're we're definitely we're definitely in the midwest somewhere mm-hmm. a small town and I'll, I'll say the last thing I'll say for for what works is is the ambiguity of it all, um, yes. especially the story. Like it, it, there 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 will be so many defense lawyer movies that will follow that are are like not to not to uh, give away ones that we might be covering later, but you know it's it's almost its own genre. It's like the defense lawyer who gets the rug pulled out from under him. You know, the Lincoln yeah. lawyer. Uh, yeah. primal instinct uh, you know it's and, and justice for all does that with al pacino yeah. where it's like oh i'm defending a despicable person how do i get out of this mm-hmm. but also not lose myself in the process but you know this one they they, they never tell you. you you never know no no you just you know don't. that he he wins his case but yeah. in, in 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 real life you never know if he did the right thing no, and that and and I and I kind of have a little bit with what didn't work, and I want to talk about that. But I do like the ambiguity. Um, I'm not sure. I'm a little questionable about how it's handled at the very end of the movie. Mm. Um, well, I guess we can. I mean, do you want to move yeah, into that? Let's right dive now? into yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Because what cause doesn't my thing, work? Well, because so it, it, it's a very abrupt ending. I will say that. I, 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 I shot. I was shocked to find because it's so odd. Not saying this didn't work, but what I thought it was so odd was that there's no closing arguments. Mm. It just jumps from like the big, which I I get it because emotionally it's so high when the daughter 
realize or, or it comes out that she's the daughter and not the mistress you can't really follow up closing arguments after that because you've hit such a like climactic moment in the trial there's no point in showing them try to close it up for like 10 minutes straight per person um mm. so they, they kind of cover it in the like oh well i thought his closing arguments were amazing and that's that's gonna be that's gonna be the killer for us but the way it kind of handles the very ending when they, when they drive up and they find that the mayans have left and it very much implies not it doesn't imply that he's guilty but it definitely implies that he's a uh, like he's an abuser of he abuses yeah. his wife yeah like he threw out all her stuff and yeah made her, made threw her, her stuff but i mean she leave. you know we've also learned from her that she likes to move she doesn't like staying in one place for too long she, so yeah but I, I guess it's like it's like do you because i well i wonder if what doesn't work is like the way stewart kind of handles the news it's almost like oh yeah he just went on and left it just it feels a little almost a tad bit too comedic is the only mm. thing for a moment that like could be like oh this dude is a domestic abuser mm-hmm. and because because the, the the guy who runs the trailer park kind of says, oh yeah she was crying and didn't look great or whatever and like it kind of implies that he he was true to his, the possible word the inmate yeah. says of like oh he's gonna like basically get a kick her around and hit her because of what she's like caused him or whatever yeah yeah well and um, she's she's got that you know lee remick's kind of last appearance is when when she comes up she's to, drunk yeah, yeah she's she's drunk and and she's joking which she's she's acting like she's joking which is we've kind of learned throughout the film as we've gone deeper into her character is her coping mechanism yeah and 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 you know she says i'm gonna go wait out in the car if my husband if my dear husband gets off he's gonna kick me to the moon or whatever the the yeah. inmate had said that that he had said and she, yeah. you know she just laughs it off and and leaves and and beagler has this moment of just like i just can't figure out what's going on here like yeah. I, I just can't yeah get a, a read on on these two yeah so so what do you feel about what do you feel about the ending part and maybe it's just me but it just, it just feels a little yeah yeah i could see that but you know yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I want Beagler to do there because that's fair. He he also kind of feels so like just tired of these people by the end of it. You know, yeah, it's like yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they've been playing with him. Both of them have been playing with him for this whole case, and he's just. I think he is kind of happy to have them out of his hair. You know, yeah. And maybe the 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 the, the happiness that he gets from or the smile that comes from that is more just like I should have known, like I should have known this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to pay us. They said they didn't have the money from the beginning, and I still took it. But I what I do like is that he's leveraged, he's leveraged the the trial to get his next client, basically. Yeah, with, and with I and I and I think a little bit of that smile too is is knowing where he stands now because if of, of, of in all this ambiguity. Mm-hmm. the you know the one person that you can point to and say like this person did nothing to anyone and was hurt in the process is is mary yeah, yeah. um you know of, of everything going on all over the place with everyone else's motivations everyone else's actions mm-hmm. you can say you know mary is an innocent bystander and in all this and and ultimately did the right thing yeah. in coming forward with this information or with this evidence yeah. that she found and so there is that kind of <laughs> relief of being like well now now i've got like i'm doing the right thing oh, yeah, this next time like I'm, yeah. I'm i'm helping her out and i'm moving on to something that is going to be a lot clearer on my conscience 
Yes, and will possibly get me better jobs in the process than than this or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but yeah, that was my only kind of questionable thing. Was there anything for you that you did not like about it or didn't work for you? Oh, man, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, like, I would like to say that the movie could be shorter, but I can't think of anything I'd cut. I don't, I don't yeah, I think, it, I think the pace is actually, for a two-hour and 40-minute movie, it's paced well. Yeah, it's wild that George C. Scott doesn't show up till like, halfway yeah. through the movie. <laughs> yeah, and the way, again, the way I kind of bring him in is nice, where, like, he's there, you know he's there, and they the occasionally, they'll, like, I love the, one part I do love that I forgot to mention is, like, when basically both attorneys keep objecting mm-hmm. and Stuart's like hey i can't keep going against both these guys at once yeah. like i already I, it's me against the, these guys anyway like the like the a more experienced attorney with george g scott i can't keep playing ping pong with these guys mm-hmm. like and that's like okay if you're gonna question the person you're the one objecting and that's where like a little bit later they switch like hey george g scott's the only one doing the questions mm-hmm. and the main attorney's just sitting back basically not doing anything the entire time um but again also uh, we i i talk about this or, or, or we'll probably talk about later in the month with certain things but like i like the kind of interplay between stewart and the other attorney um mm-hmm. uh blanking on the name he said uh uh mitch uh brooks west character um because they kind of uh, that part when they first meet it's like they're kind of they're friendly with one another mm-hmm. is the thing he seems and, like he he likes paul a lot more than paul likes it you know he's like oh come check yes. out my massage chair and yeah, paul's just like yeah, yeah. i don't know i'm good yeah, no, I'm good. yeah. <laughs> you're the uh, one you, you got you you took my job right. you took my job yeah forget you <laughs> yeah, i gotta do he, something else he does kind of at the beginning of the trial he does have kind of this like oh i thought we were friends like yeah <laughs> Why are you attacking me like this, man? Well, What's yeah, going on? That. When, when they're like, you know, we'd like to bring in our own psychiatrist. And, and Jimmy Stewart's like, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a little late. It's a little late in the trial to do it. And they're like, yeah, but, you know, we we know you'll, like, let us do it. We don't need to file the formal uh, petition for it. And he's like, no, why don't you go ahead and file that petition? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, man, I've never had to. Because cause what's, what's happening is that they've never dealt with a lawyer as intelligent as him probably in this town. Mm-hmm because he's been on the other side of it so he knows yeah he knows how to play the game with this yeah um, yeah i mean going back to it like, like i said i I'd, I'd like to say it the movie shouldn't be two hours, two hours and 40 yeah. minutes long but you know uh, they, uh, uh, a friend of mine always says there there is no wrong runtime for a film you can you can see a film and go that film was longer than it needed to have been but yeah. if you see a movie that's three hours long and it deserved to be three hours long, you yes. can't ding it for being three hours long. I agree. And and I do think it, I, I think it earns its runtime. I, yeah. yeah. At no point was I sitting there and this was my fourth time rewatching it. And I was, I was into it the whole time. Spartacus, Spartacus was too long. It didn't too earn long, its runtime. Too long. Yeah. It's, that's the thing. It's like, does it, it's not like, is it minute wise? Is it too long? Or like you saying too long or too short? It's like, does it earn it? Yeah. And if it earns it, great. It's like Lawrence of Arabia, earns its runtime if you want to like go maybe not for some mm-hmm. people but like if to me it earns its runtime to to get a little bit more uh modern with it you know there's a story going around that that kevin feige uh with cut, thor. cut thor at two hours and it's yeah. just like that movie needed a l- more, more room more to time. breathe yeah, yeah it, it needed, more needed room, room to, breathe. to breathe and and it really hurt the movie in my opinion that it didn't breathe and so you can't just put this arbitrary like a movie should be two hours yeah, every movie, like, every movie needs a different runtime. And like Snyder's Justice League, need a little less time. To oh breathe. my god! Yeah, that so I, that that's a three-hour movie. It should be a three-hour movie. I'm totally fine with it being three hours. Four hours is too much. Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else that didn't work here? 
that's it for me, honestly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's easy to, to go back from a, you know, it does try and do so much stuff kind of socially with its commentary. Yeah. It's easy to go back from a modern standpoint and say like, oh, they could have gone a little bit further here, but like, you got to put yourself back there. They were going so far past the yeah. boundaries at the time. It was, it was insane what boundaries they were crossing. And, and, and with that, we'll move into film facts because oh, yeah. I have this little fact here. Um, apart from the scandal of the repeated mention of words that were taboo, mm-hmm. including rape and panties, uh, prior to the release of this film, the words contraceptive, uh, sexual climax, and, and spermatogenesis Genesis, yeah. had never been said on film before. Or on a feature, you know. I'm sure they've been Jim, said on, Jimmy, on a dirty and, film yeah, circulating yeah. somewhere. But And Jimmy Stewart now now has the has the, the uh the mantle of being the first one to say all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Picture uh, being, the, being Jimmy Stewart the one that he's the first one to say sexual climax on a movie is Jimmy Stewart of all mm-hmm. people. Uh, speaking of which, Jimmy Stewart's own father was so scandalized by the film that he took out an ad in his local newspaper begging people <laughs> to not see it because he said it was a dirty film. <laughs> I'm sure it was like whatever small town they were in, like everyone went to go see every Jimmy Stewart movie and he was just like, he's like I gotta not- get word to the town. I gotta tell yeah. him not to see this one. Yeah, he's from Pennsylvania. Indiana, Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, oh, man. Joseph Welch, as we said, notably not an actor, uh, could not learn <laughs> could not learn lines and had to read completely off of a teleprompter, which I think is even more impressive with how good he is in this movie. <laughs> uh, due to shooting on location where the novel was set, the film had the option to lose to use the Lumberjack Tavern where the actual murder occurred as a set. Uh, finding that just a little too mor- morbid, they instead chose to shoot at the neighboring Thunder Bay Inn, which was just 300 yards down the street from the wow. actual crime scene. So they actually used the real name of the place that they're shooting mm. at. Yep. Wow. Uh, Ellington's score is one of five scores to win Best Score at the Grammys while not being nominated for an Oscar. The others are Glory, uh, Crimson Tide, Independence Day, and The Dark Knight. Yeah, I know Dark Knight got uh, disqualified because it had used a lot of music that was in Batman Begins. Uh-huh. As, that was why. Um, I don't know about the other ones. I do. It's fine. Interesting that, that they're all kind of like well, at least Crimson Tide and Independence Day. What was the four, what was the other one that you said? Glory. That? Glory. Okay, Glory. Uh, at least Crimson Tide and Independence Day are like very, I guess, blockbustery movies, mm-hmm. and you wonder if that's not if that's why I didn't get it. Um, I don't know what if there was because because the music the musical the music uh, rules are very odd sometimes like mm-hmm. you have you have to have a certain percentage of, of original music and not I think it's like you have to have eighty percent original music or something I that that might be completely wrong um, but it was something of that nature where it's a very numerical way of like oh there's this there's this much in here we can't use it like so that's why Dark Knight I think got disqualified from being mm-hmm. up for it yeah. which is crazy because it's I think it's more known. The dark, the score for the bat, those Batman movies are more well known from Dark Knight, not Batman Begins. Yeah, like you always see a Dark Knight, not Batman Begins. Yeah, and finally, Preminger famously sued Screen Gems years after the film's release for selling this film in a package of sixty other films for television airing. Preminger caught it on television once and counted thirteen commercial breaks totaling thirty-six commercials. He then sued the studio for mutilating his film <laughs> and eventually lost. Oh yeah, he would. Yeah, <laughs> thirty-six commercials. I feel like you know, if you watch a movie, a I movie wish we had thirty-six today, commercials. Yeah. Thirty-six commercials in a two-hour, like two-hour and forty-minute span. Like if this movie was on cable, 
today, mm-hmm. it would be at least four hours. Yeah, I was about to say they probably just pushed it to three. three. Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah, it would be at least it would be at least three and a half, and probably cut some scenes out. And yeah, then, yeah, yep. No, yeah, no. That's why no one watches movies on TV anymore. Yeah. <laughs> All right, awards. Yeah, Beatrice Strait Award, actor or actress with limited scenes that kills it. Um. Who do you feel here? I, I want. Are you going with the judge? I think so. It's Joseph Welch. He's. He's. I, I think he. He doesn't show up till halfway through, and then he really doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. He's just handling the the uh, objections. Yeah, but I, to know that he's like, like a complete non-actor. Non-actor. And he's and, and there is like some warmth to him, mm-hmm. which I find nice. Like he's and, he, and like I think he's he seems like a good judge. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's not he's not pulling for one side or the other. Mm. He's very much again. I, the key moment I love that we talked about was just like, hold on, and then like two like two questions later. Okay, now you can go. Yeah. Like it's like it's like it's like I, I just love kind of the playfulness. Yeah, and he, he yeah character. he rolls he rolls with the playfulness of the the attorneys or at least Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call dancer playful, but um, yeah, but he, he he kind of rolls. With, he's not like you know you guys stop doing that. Don't make jokes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he he rolls with it he goes with it yeah well, i think he's he is ultimately a good judge as far as yeah. the the film judge hall of fame goes goes uh, yeah i would agree and i do love how he just keeps commenting on the town because he's, he's not someone who's from there so he was brought in because the, the main judge is like sick or something mm-hmm. but he keeps commenting he's like he goes yeah i was told about how you guys would be down here but i didn't think you'd be this nice or like whatever like he just keeps commenting on how the town's treated him which mm-hmm. i found fun and it's um, just just such a baller move to cast the guy who brought down Joseph McCarthy in your legal. Yeah, movie. exactly. Because is it to go with the Hollywood aspect of it, it's like it's that's a comment on that is that McCarthyism with the House of Americans Committee and all that stuff that was happening in the 50, 40s and fifties of trying to find the, the 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 Reds in in Hollywood. It feels it's like it's like you could take that and it'd be the production board. It's like yeah. the production board being a production code being like we don't want communist ideals in our movies. And you had the guy that brought down the guy who really pushed that in your movie, who's essentially deciding what can and can't be said in the court courtroom. Knowing knowing how Preminger felt about method acting and knowing that he did this in this movie, I'd be very curious to ask Preminger what he thought about Kazan. <laughs> I think he'd get some very interesting uh, opinions there. Yeah, I mean, Kazan, that, there was something that happened around Twitter about, like, Orson Welles commenting on Kazan. Mm, yep. And he was basically saying, I will not answer any question about any of his movies. He's like, great filmmaker. I will never comment on his movies. It's like what he said. Yep. I'm like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the Beatrice Strait Award yeah. goes Joseph to Welch. Joseph Welch, the yeah. famed attorney slash one-time actor. Yeah. One time he, he did it once and he got once, the Beatrice Strait Award. Talk, talk about like talk about 100%, just like batting a thousand right there. <laughs> for the benefit of the jury, but more especially for the spectators, the undergarment referred to in the testimony was, to be exact, Mrs. Mannion's panties. <laughs> I wanted you to get your snickering over and done with. This pair of panties will be mentioned again in the course of this trial. And when it happens, there will not be one laugh, one snicker, one giggle, or even one smirk in my courtroom. There isn't anything comic about a pair of panties which figure in the violent death of one man 
and the possible incarceration of another. All right, uh, Annie Potts X Factor Award for the supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable. Okay, I feel like there's a lot of people that could be up for this. Mm-hmm. I think there's three. Okay, Maybe, I think I think uh, I know which three. But go for which, it. Which three do you think you that I would think say? You're doing Lee Remick. Yes. Bengazera. Yes. And Georgie e. Scott. Yes. Yeah. I think all three are great. I think all three are great. Um. And we can talk about each of them individually if we can, because like George C. Scott is just like, he's the one that in terms of playfulness with dialogue and banter, mm. he's the one that's doing it the most out of those three. Like yeah. he's, he's, he's really for a guy who's only been in two movies. He has a great presence and mm. a commanding presence uh, at such a young, I guess a young upstart career or a young, 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 young actor. Um, He's really great in this mo in this in this movie. Uh Ben Gazer, what I think about him is like there is this fierceness to him. Oh yeah. And you don't know if it's if it's like when it's gonna blow. Like mm-hmm. even when like even when he's like hugging Lee Remick when she gets off the stand after she's been kind of like really questioned by George C. E. Scott, and it's you don't know whether like it's like is this all a show for him? Yeah, and he's really gonna be the guy who's like he's gonna do it. He says he's gonna do that inmate or whatever. Like it's like there's just this fierceness in his eyes where you can almost see him early on in me specifically trying to find the thing to say that will please Paul Beegler will please mm-hmm. Stewart yeah. and you're seeing him work through it all. And it's, it's really fascinating to watch mm-hmm. him do that. Yeah. Very calculating um, and like a near constant smirk on his face. And it's like, we're yes. all, you killed somebody. Like we're all here because yeah. you murdered someone, regardless of whether you get off or not, you shot yeah. that man. You shot that man, no matter what you did. Uh, and then Lee Remick is someone who she, she's a very complex character to me. Because yeah. she plays the innocent wife and then plays kind of the the loose wife who likes having fun and and dressing in a certain way to feel good about herself. It's like, it's all these different things that she's doing. And you, it's almost like a shock at first to see her out drinking at the roadhouse when Stuart finds her mm-hmm. because she's played this doubting, uh, yeah, this caring housewife um beforehand basically mm-hmm. it's just an interesting switch and so you never know where she's gonna be uh in the movie so they're all it's all really great performances by all three yeah that's a, that's such a tough character because it's it's yeah, extremely it complex for a female character of that type at this time yes and, and she's someone who has a lot of sadness and has to cope with it by pretending to be happy all the time yeah you know she's she's got to be she's always got to be flirting or she's always got to be laughing she just can't it's like she can't stop for a second or yeah she's gonna be overwhelmed by her situation in life yeah she's like a hummingbird and, and like um, society society has a a hold on her in some way of like why she can't dress a certain way when she, it's that's why it's always fun when, when like Stuart does the like when they're when they're trying to comment on her, well, how is her hair? How is this? And Stuart's like, "Oh, we can show you right now. Come on, mm-hmm. take your hat off." Like it's like it's like it it's the way she, like they try to cover her up to make her be this type character, but she's I mean she's yeah she's walking a line throughout yeah. the whole movie. I feel like, um, but yeah, I I 
I almost want to give it to her for some reason. I, I was going to say Lee Roman. <laughs> I just think this was such a such a cutting edge role for a, yeah. a, a, an actress at this time. And, and you know, not just having it, it took a lot of bravery, obviously, to dress like that because Lana Turner wouldn't do it. Um, yeah. And and to take on this character and to give it depth because I'm sure it was there in the script, but like so much of it is in her performance of it as well. Yes. And and for 1959 to say like, yeah, I'll play that character and yeah. to, and to nail it is is just kind of insane. And for her, she's like 24, 25. Like it's only her, it's her fourth movie at this point in time. Um. It's a tough role to play. Also, just to, if you likely remake in this movie or you know, like Days of Wine and Roses, she's amazing in, mm. which comes out like three years later, and it adds more. You're talking about the coping mechanism of alcohol in this movie. That one, it's an alcohol, alcohol, uh, alcoholism movie. She's fantastic in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll go with Lee Remick. I'll go with that. Sometimes when Manny was sleeping, I'd come out here and just sit. I had to get out of that trailer. I couldn't stand being cooped up all the time. I'm lonely, Paul. I'm awful lonely. I wouldn't have gone to that roadhouse if it weren't for that, you know? Maybe you're getting in some good practice being lonely. You mean you think maybe Manny won't get off? That'll be up to the jury, and you can never tell about them. If he didn't, it'd be one way to end it. No, I I don't mean that. I, I may think it sometimes, but I don't really want it. And then... The Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries this movie. So I think it's two people. Yep, is is the argument, and that's Jimmy Stewart and Otto Preminger. It's tough. This might be one of the toughest ones we've done. It might be because I don't know of another actor of this period to play this role and to have the baggage to play this role, and it be like it's almost subversive for this person to be in it, mm-hmm. like Stewart. But Preminger is the one that handles it and is the one who's pushing, who's needling and pushing the boundaries and, and, and almost forcing Hollywood to transition to a new era yeah. in some way. But then you also have these stories about Stewart keeping Being Preminger the, keeping in check calm. on set. Yeah. yeah. And also, it's again, I, I talked about how it's a different period. It's like it, the, the last act of Stewart's career. Says, he said it's his last Oscar nomination. Like... It, it's hmm. it's a tough one i saying with the preface, preface that this is one of the toughest ones i think we've ever done i think the fact yeah. that preminger produced this as well is what mm. puts it over the top that That's you know fair. he saw he saw it through from from buying the novel to deciding to shoot on location to casting the film to mm-hmm. cutting it in 21 days like it, you know it, it's 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 so interesting that that Priminger is kind of this like anti auteur when when it really is just like his voice like yeah. as as this like producer director in an era before producer directors were a thing really um, to see this movie from like very beginning to very end and be like I'm gonna make this movie exactly the way I want to do it it's like such an auteur thing to do but then also be like I'm not I'm not putting my stylistic stamp on this. Um, it, yeah, it's such an interesting era, but yeah, like, like to to kind of be this person who ushers in the independent era, um, 
is wild. Like every everything this movie represents is is crazy, and 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 a lot of that, like you said, is is what Stewart brings to it. But but yeah. I think Preminger's got a little bit of the edge by being this this producer director in a time when when we just didn't have those. Yeah, I agree. I'll go Preminger on this. I think we'll cover. Not Stewart that I don't several. love Jimmy Stewart. No, I I, I feel like <laughs> I think we. T- I, mean, I I feel like like we we've talked about Stewart before and has he ever won the mvp before i feel like no we gave it to katherine hepburn for philadelphia's story we had katherine hepburn and didn't we give it to cat we give it for capra for it's wonderful life or did we give it to stewart well, i think, I think we might gave it to stewart i think we gave, gave it to stewart because yeah because yeah, he'd think, come back I, from the war and it kind and of i think that. we argued that it's wonderful life feels more like a jimmy stewart movie than a cat and mr smith goes to washington feels more like a capra movie in mm. some way i don't know why People might disagree with that, but I always think of Jimmy Stewart first. That's wonderful life. Uh, but I know we're wondering it was Hitchcock, so that's that's mm-hmm. why I was trying. Wow, we've done four Jimmy Stewart movies in this podcast. Has it been four? At least four. Just wait till we do uh, Fear of Height movies month. <laughs> but I'll premature MVP award. All I want you to do is just listen to me, just just for a few minutes. Now I need some strong evidence to back up Laura Mannion's story about the rape. Prosecution's gonna attack that story pretty hard and if if the jury thinks she's lying well that could turn the decision against Madden you see well isn't she lying Barney didn't do what she said he did he couldn't have what did you know about your father all I needed to know he took care of me and of my mother for as long as she lived he was always there when I needed him that's what I know about my father Mr. Beagler will that back up Laura Mannion's story Right. I, I don't want to get at you. I don't want to hurt you. I appreciate your affection for your father. But but as a lawyer, I've had to learn that people aren't just good or just bad. But people are many things. And I kind of have a feeling that Barney Quill was many things. Uh, final questions. Okay. Who's Give me your, your modern day anatomy of a murder cast. Okay. I have a lot of people okay. here. So for for Maida, his secretary, mm-hmm. Margaret Martindale. Okay, love it. Uh, Judge Weaver. Mm-hmm. John Lithgow. Great, very judge like. Mister Dancer, George C. Scott's character. Shea Wiggum. Nice. Okay, I like it. He's very slick, very, very uh, sinister, but not very sinister, not in a yeah. not in a human way. Yeah um for parnell who's his best friend mm-hmm. uh i did uh ron cephas jones yes who who's this is us uh the who plays sterling k brown's father and this is us mm-hmm. um for frederick Mannion, for for ben gazer's character jamie dornan oh okay that's who i have for that i can see that okay for laura Mannion, i have two people down for this okay I have Anya Taylor-Joy. Yes. And Kate Mara. Mm. Okay. Let me let me throw you one. Okay. I didn't recast the whole thing, but let me. Let okay. Me th- okay. Margaret Qualley. Oh, that is a good one. I like Margaret Qualley for that. Okay. Who else? Did, you, did I skip any ones that you had already? No. Who were ones that you picked? No. Okay. So that was just one that struck you, me you, last you night. Lar- okay. Gotcha. I like Margaret Qualley. We'll go with Margaret Qualley on this one. I do out of the two I picked, I like Kate Mara more, honestly. Mm. For this, I think both could play it, but I like Mark Qualley for this. All right. Okay, for Paul Beagler. 
I have two. One I like more. Okay. Also, the first one that I don't like. I, I like him in this. I think he could capture some of it, but I don't know. Is that and that's Gary Oldman. Okay. My favorite pick for this, though, is Hugh Grant. Hmm. I think okay. you could do it. I think you could do it. I, I I don't know about the accent. I don't know about the accent. And it's British, but like it could just be a guy who's moved to the small town or whatever from <laughs> England or something. Um, but I think it could capture the humor of it. Mm. I think it captured the compassion of Stewart's character. Like I see Hugh Grant in that in that scene with with Benga's or with with Mister Ma- with Frederick Mannion spinning that cigar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like the eye and his eyes, like like just watching him intently. I could see Hugh Grant doing that. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Okay. Yeah, because there is this. You know, we didn't we we talked about his character a little bit, but there is this kind of quality to Paul that's like this guy used to be a slick lawyer, and he's yes. kind of like he's kind of like over it now. Yes, and I think and that's I Hugh think Grant. Grant could bring that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think could bring that. Yeah. Okay, I like that. Yeah. That was a surprise. Yeah. I that feel was, like you yeah. can't have a conversation about Jimmy Stewart in any role no. without Hanks coming up. But I, I thought about Hanks. I thought about Hanks, but I didn't want to go the the obvious route. Yeah. I think Hanks could do it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if you want to go like star power, Tom Hanks. But I was like, what would be a different role? Because I because I, I feel like we, we we picked Hanks a lot. Maybe not, but I feel like he's one of the audience thrown around. But he's somebody I also think I, I throw Hugh Grant around a lot a lot too. Um, but something about it's just interesting. I don't know why. Yeah, Hugh Grant. It feels like a feels like an HBO miniseries, and I'm not mad about it. Yeah, no, it could be. It honestly could be. Because yeah. um, I think he's somewhere. He's in a, he's in a, in a period in his career where he's taking interesting choices if and playing and playing off of his his of persona. His yeah. Persona, yes, exactly. That's why I think it could work perfectly for this. Yeah, awesome. I like that. Okay. Cool. So in 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 the in our leads we've got Hugh Grant, Margaret Qualley, <laughs> and Jamie to, Dornan. Sorry to step in on that. Yeah, and Jamie Dornan. And Jamie Dornan. Yeah. Okay, I'd watch okay. that. I like. Yeah, I'd watch that movie. That, I think that is a mini. That would be a miniseries. Yeah. Easily. Uh. So does this film fit with any other genres? I don't think it does. I mean, you could maybe you could argue like, is it somewhat of a mystery? But it's like because you have you have him playing in like a detective type role in that first half trying to figure out things, mm-hmm. but you never get a clear cut ending of what the mystery is of like what actually happened. Like, there's no like if you did do a miniseries, I feel like there's always that kind of like flashback to what actually happened that night, and it's. Oh yeah, I, 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 I didn't include this, but Preminger hates flashbacks. Preminger, <laughs> like if you go through his entire career, like Preminger thought flashbacks were so contrived, and so um, I don't think it was there was any kind of flashback included in the book. I did. But yeah. He was like, you know, we're not, we're not, we're never showing you what really happened. It's just we're let, not yeah, happening. we're let, we're letting you determine what happened. We're letting you decide, which I think is, I think is a. a a stroke of genius i think to me because that that makes the film more memorable and it mm-hmm. creates a discussion of like oh should george she's have done this like was the it's i mean i think that happens a lot in many court cases in our modern era where like you have an outcome but there's always these lingering questions that surround it afterwards mm-hmm. so yeah um 
so kind of going along with that, how does this film fit with the courtroom drama genre that we're yeah. talking about this month? Well, I say, I think it is very much, I mean, we'll discuss it more, but I think in terms of American court system, I think it's in the general kind of court. I think it is a, one of the purest trial movies yeah. yep. uh, to go to, to be, to be made um, in terms of like, from like the prep and the, and the reading the books, et cetera, but it is very much, especially it's the first one to really do it, to really commit to like, we're giving you the nuts and bolts of a trial mm-hmm. uh, and trial law. Um, but I think in terms of archetypes or tropes, it's like you have the the old old the the aging lawyer in this in the in the final act of his career, but still need to keep going. And it's also kind of the old country lawyer in a way. I'm a humble old country lawyer. Um, but then you kind of have that, that young hotshot attorney coming from the big city mm-hmm. who naturally is kind of the, the antagonist or the antithesis of everything Stuart's character is. Um, and then, and then you have that aging wise judge mm-hmm. um, within it. So it, ha- it has kind of the, uh, those tropes and also kind of the, with, in terms of like Ben Gazzara's character with, with Frederick Mangan, it's like the questionable defendant, yeah, the duplicitous client, which yeah, yes. it's, it's, you know, if, if, if within this month, I think we're starting to see that there is like this subgenre of the defense attorney yeah. movie. And that is like a staple of that one is like, I don't know yeah. whether to trust my client or not. Like I can yeah. really only think of like a time to kill is is really one where they just kind of present it like this happened there's no question about it yes. we just have to figure out how to def- defend it how, how to defend it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. But i mean um, you know, almost every other defense attorney movie there's always this this kind of question of yeah. whether or not i should trust and, and you know yeah. i just have I to my, do my job i can't I, yeah. I, I can't decide whether to trust them or not but my yeah. job is to defend them no matter what i think a time to kill like time to kill i think my cousin Vinny fits in that category yeah, of yeah, like yeah. we know um but this prompts moral ambiguity, I think, is the thing with it all. I think, and we'll we'll talk about that next week when we talk about A Few Good Men, about moral ambiguity within a case. Mm-hmm. And that's here, is that no one's like, someone has done something wrong, but the question is, was it justified? Mm-hmm. Um, and wh- what was the cause of this action? Yeah. Um, and it really dives into, and like really splitting hairs on what all that is. Not just like, he murdered, he's guilty open shut case it really tries to dive into the motivation behind it all right right and like you said when 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 it comes down to this being like a pure courtroom film there is there is no melodrama here no Uh, it's just kind of presented like as we found out how a real court case may go down yeah Uh, (laughs) for better or for worse it is it is a real court case happening and like Um, bringing in things like like rebuttal witnesses and like that's why you can have um, the daughter come in last minute and be like, well, she's a rebuttal witness to these things earlier mm-hmm. that requ- that required that, that allows me to have someone coming in last minute, but it isn't the, like, I mean, you do kind of have the big reveal of like some big reveal at the end. Like I think of like, I think the most over the top example to me is like legally blonde when they're like, when it's the big, like gets her to admit uh, to murder on, gets the stand. To admit on the stand. Basically that's like that end of the spectrum. This does it in a more, logical way it feels like where mm-hmm. it's the like george c scott like basically paints himself into a corner essentially yeah. and ask a question he doesn't know the answer to which is again in movie and movie courtroom dramas you should never do mm-hmm. 
Well, so. you know, we're almost done here, but to, to yeah. harp on that moment one more time, it's like the, you know, in so many other movies, it's not in this movie. It's as far as the case goes, that's not that much of a bombshell. The, the like importance yeah. of it is, is that George C. Scott is cracked. You know, yes. the, the importance is like seeing him fall because this whole case has been this like battle of these two people and, and yes. to see Scott falter. Yeah. Yeah is what's important there you know ultimately in the grand scheme of things the fact that barney had an illegitimate daughter is like not and that the case. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And that's the case but it's because it just it pokes holes in everything else around yeah. it it's like oh well why was she gonna why is she throwing her own father under the bus now mm-hmm. and she and the thing is she was not willing to give that information up it was essentially basically pulled out of her yeah um is why so yeah well there we go well, that's it. Anavian murder. Yeah. So going back on our on our awards real quick, if you you know, Beatrice Strait Award, go back and watch the the clip of Joseph Welch in front yeah. of the Senate. Great clip. Annie Potts X Factor Award. Go go watch several of the Lee Remick films that we recommended, including A Face in the Crowd and Days of Wine and Roses. And uh Gene Hackman MVP Award. Watch some more Otto Preminger because he's obviously someone who is a a titan in the film industry for or, or, or a groundbreaker in the film industry and and hasn't i think hasn't gotten kind of the the lasting legacy that maybe he deserves so yeah yeah i mean we talked about that with like fritz lang back in the day where like you watch him he's like wow he's really damn good and surprisingly not discussed like it's like yeah, that was another one talking about hitchcock where like fritz lang and hitchcock were like neck and neck with things every mm-hmm. few years of like Lang does this, Hitchcock does this. They're both from silent era. They're tackling very similar ideas of like the spy thrillers or these type genres and they're and they're and they're introducing taboos into the film. But Hitchcock just somehow he hits his peak in the fifties when Lang is going down mm-hmm. and doing like cheap B movie noir films when Hitchcock's rising up. And Preminger's somewhere in between that, where he's doing his own thing, but he's getting acclaim getting box office success but not on the level of hitchcock and not as as underappreciated at the time as fritz lang was so yeah. it's an interesting kind of mix yeah for him well, there you go there's some homework there check out check out all that stuff and yes watch a lot of stuff you can tell us what you think about them if you email us at sendationpodcast@gmail.com. but next week our next movie in our courtroom drama case or courtroom drama films is a few good men Starring Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Denny Moore, Kevin Pollock, Kevin Bacon. List goes on and on. Directed by Rob Reiner. Written by Aaron Sorkin in his first screenplay. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Watch it if you can. It's a big favorite, I think, by a lot of people. is a few good men. So yeah. But that's all we have for you on this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at sendationpodcast.gmail.com. Like I said, send us your questions, comments, kind words. And if you're a new listener or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us yet, be sure to subscribe to the Nation Podcast to update on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Well, shucks, we're just a small, independently produced podcast trying to hold our own against some of these big studio podcasts, so we can sure use a good review on our uh, podcast platform. Well, say here, just give us give us five stars, five <laughs> stars. We love, we need the five stars to, yeah. 
I should have worked on my Jimmy Stewart before I did this today. <laughs> um, but yeah, we love to hear from you guys. It helps us get more visibility. Uh, yeah, it, it, it warms our heart. That's the key thing. It's 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 not holiday season yet, but just pretend it is and give us a review as a, as a, as a gift. I don't know. Um, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and also Letterboxd. I've always forgot to mention this. We're on Letterboxd, so go do that. Sination Podcast see the stuff we're watching see the lists we're creating because we're trying to do more and more lists as we go on um but yeah it's a way to kind of follow us as well but thomas as always thank you for joining me thank you for having me and thank you all for listening we hope you listen to more episodes soon bye